Hi, I'm Courtney Brown at Emory University. Welcome to my class in science fiction and politics. Let's begin with Neuromancer, William Gibson. And again, this is a book dealing with cyberpunk and Neuromancer by William Gibson and on the other side we have a Snow Crash a different book entirely that uh, those are the two real great classics of cyberpunk so with William Gibson's Neuromancer just what did you think what was the what's your what's your raw impression of what the of what was going on in the book what was it like well a lot of the time you like it, it's one of the well, sci-fi writers tend to invent their own words for things. Yeah. But yeah. this whole book is like invented words. Invented words. You know, uh, Neil Stephenson's book Snow Crash is like that as well. Was That's he the guy who wrote the Diamond Age? The what? Was he the guy who wrote the Diamond Age? I don't know. Yeah, because I read that book. He's written a whole bunch of them, a whole bunch of books. But the Snow Crash is one I'm the most familiar with. Is that a doesn't doesn't is that a science fiction mm-hmm. book? But uh, Mel Gibson's The Romancer and Neil Stephenson's Snow Crash are the classic ones, and both of them use different language, language of this type where you have a whole bunch of new words. And it's real. It's, it's a real challenge to sort of get through it, but why do you think they use this language? Why do you think they come up with this invented language, these new words? It goes beyond hip-hop vocabulary. Why do you think they do that? portray the new culture kind of as like a way to help you get into their like world like we've been talking about yeah make the reader be involved more it certainly gets you involved more it certainly gets you into their world more exactly but what else um highlights the differences i mean if you use a whole different vocabulary then you know these people are drug addicts and like you know a lot of people know the vocabulary of like modern day drug addicts yeah. but then it's it's kind of like these people have their own whole vocabulary and like different stuff like that makes you makes you realize how different their world is yeah it makes you realize how different their world is now is everybody a drug addict though no but the whole world is still using this type of weird funky language it's, the whole world seems to be different, weird, in a strange way. The the use of language probably relates to that. How can you... What do you think of that? When you come to an English class here at Emory and you, you take a course on writing, what do they expect you to do? Grammatically. Use the English language. Use the English language, but also follow the rules, right? I mean, you're supposed to follow the rules. You're supposed to make sure every sentence has a verb. You're supposed to make sure that there's a subject in every sentence, uh, you know, the correct use of the objects. You're supposed to not end the sentence with a preposition. All those types of things, which actually is a curious uh, aspect of, of language. There was one, one person long ago who said never end a sentence with a preposition, and it sort of stuck. <laughs> no, you can't. It's very hard sometimes to twist around sentences so you can get that last preposition away from the end but there are rules the point is there are rules and what happens when you find people using these different language, this different language the rules what about the rules they're changed they're broken they're broken they changed everything's out the window so the rules have changed and you, so you see the use of the language actually if you were to write in the king's english a book like Neuromancer, it just wouldn't make sense because the rules of the language would have still been maintained and so you wouldn't believe that the society has fallen apart, that the society had collapsed. So you see, when the use of the language is a great point that you raise, it's an indicative of something else that's going on in the novel. It's not just that the language has changed because it's far into the future. It's that the rules of the contemporary society have broken down. The language is broken down. Nothing is the same. So we have seen that in a number of novels, but this one is really, it's really key. And by the way, you'll, it was Neil Stephenson's Snow Crash. You'll see the exact 
same thing. My son, who's reading Neil Stephenson's Snow Crash, he really gets off in the language. He says, my gosh, everything is so, you know, wild. He's not read Neuromancer. But the the language is really very interesting. What about the uh, issue of uh, jacking into the computer net? What's that all about? I think that got normalized in the Matrix, though. Yeah, but this I came out before the Matrix. Oh, oh, I know, but I think like when you read it today, mm-hmm. it, doesn't so it, it doesn't seem so weird. It's just oh, the Matrix. Like, yeah, I mean, you know, because those people they you know jacked in with that thing in the back of their heads, and then they yeah. were in the computer. So, I mean, did the Matrix get inspiration from this book? Pardon me. Did the creators of the Matrix get inspiration from this book? Gain inspiration. Well, the, it's a cyberpunk movie. And in, in a sense, it has aspects of cyberpunk in it. Not entirely, but it does have it. But this was, I believe this was the first book of it, of, it, of this, of this subgenre of cyberpunk. And I believe this was the first book where they had this jacking into the matrix, jacking into the net. And so the, um, the Wachowski brothers, you know, I don't know for a, sh- for a fact but I'd be astounded if they had not read this book as well as Neil Stephenson's Snow Crash and borrowed a lot of the ideas of jacking into the network, into the matrix, from from these, from this. Where did that come from? Why is it real? Is it something so far-fetched that we can never... Is it a fantasy, or is it... Where does it come from that relates to current life? This is where it affects you more than me. I was out of the generation that it's relevant for. I remember my generation, the closest <coughs> we ever got to anything like this was Pac-Man. Um, like all these online games where you're teamed up with people around the world, it's insanely realistic. And yeah, the online games. How many people play online games? Or have a reason. Anyone? Anyone? Does Brothers anyone not do it? I don't do it, but my brother. I'm not Your brothers do it. I'm a big fan. But I, I know a lot of people are obsessed with it. Obsessed with it. Yeah. Done it before. Yeah, you can play like cards. It doesn't yeah. even have to be like a yeah. huge video game. Well, let me see. Let me ask this question: When you've seen your brothers or sisters do these online games, what does their face look like when they're at the computer? Like they're really intense. They're dead serious. You can't bother them. I don't know. Or sometimes, sometimes their their jaw drops and they get glassy eyed. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Really frustrated if anybody tries to interrupt and like. It's yeah, it's that, a level of kind It's a waste of time because they'll they'll like eat their food and they just go run back. Yeah, yeah it's an addiction. It's an addiction. Yeah. yeah. Well, do you see where this came from? This was a very foretelling novel because he was able to see this type of thing happening before it happened. Science fiction at its very best, and it, he didn't have very long to go. I mean, it came. What was it? What did it come out? Nineteen eighty-four. Let me see. I think it was in nineteen eighty-four. Yeah, nineteen eighty-four. The Ace printing was nineteen eighty-four. Copyright nineteen eighty-four. Well, that was uh, quite an ability to do that. I mean, in nineteen eighty-four, I was teaching calculus in Africa, and you know, I had there were just Pac-Man was it, and I didn't grow up with Pac-Man, but that was the only thing that anyone had to play with. He's really crude computer games that were run on really small computers. I love Pac-Man. What's that? I still love Pac-Man. Pac-Man? Yeah, well, you have to understand, Pac-Man was the cutting edge back in those days. It was the thing. I mean, there was nothing not much <laughs> better than Pac-Man. So, so it was... Yeah, okay. So you see, this was quite foretelling, quite prescient to be able to see that this type of thing happened. So this is an aspect of society where people start living in that world, living in this in this world, actually going through it and actually having a... Now, it's the natural next thing for the gamers, of course, to be able to be, have that experience more realistic. They want more realistic games. So what's the next thing? The next thing is going to be, I've already seen it. They have situations now where they have multiple full-screen monitors on either side, so it's just a surround experience. Not just little monitors, but, you know, like plasma screens all over. So you're in the environment completely. Sounds, the chairs are certain, you feel all the vibrations. They're trying to get in the sensory apparatus through the nervous system as best they can. Of course, what's the very best, of course, is a direct jack-end, just like you got in the movie, The Matrix, and as you're getting in here, where you actually just plug in. So uh, in, in Snow Crash, they often use glasses. 
special classes that surround you and then you're just in there from, from that way, from the optical nerve. They get in through the optical nerve. And you, I mean, and there has to be some access point to get into the nervous system. If it's not a hardwired jack-in, then it's got to be some way of, you know, sensory enveloping. Uh, and that would, that would minimally include sound and complete sight. So you'd have to have glasses of some type that were, that were completely covering every aspect of your eyes and control everything you see combined with sound. Minimally, that is going to be in the near future. Minimally that. Meaning the glasses and the earphones so that at least you have five senses, you see. Hearing, touch, sight, taste, and smell. So, and smell is very difficult to deal with. They've tried that in movie theaters. And the trouble is, they actually have tried experiments where they release small scents of things at certain scenes in the movie theaters. The smoke, if there's a burning fire, things like that. The trouble is you can't get rid of the scent in the middle of the movie. So once you put a little bit of smoke in the movie theater, you smell smoke. Well, the next scene, the smoke is gone in the movie, but it's still in the movie theater, so you can't get out of it. So the smell part is more difficult. But the sight and the hearing is instantly turned on. And taste is very difficult to deal with because you can't put things in people's mouth while they're watching the movie and change those tastes to different scenes. So, but, and, and touch, they might be able to deal with some touch with regard to seats, chairs, vibrations, things like that. So touch maybe, sort of a 50% or 10%, whatever, some percentage they can get into. But sight and hearing they can get into almost entirely. So that's the future, that's the near-term future. Whether they, are, whether they ever have a hardwire jacket is a different story. So what we can see from this novel, and we'll talk about basically just the first half today, and I'm hoping actually that this might be able to be extendable for three days. We'll see how it goes. It'll be either two or three days, but I'm hoping we can get into this for three days and talk a little bit more about it. Also, I want to mention, um, I, I guess I should mention at this point what your, your, your final paper, this book is going to be the topic of your final paper. And it's going to be a little longer, about five pages, rather than just two and a half pages. Okay? It's about the same. It's almost the same, but just a little longer. Two and a half, three pages of what you've been writing. Some people have been writing a little bit more. So this goes a little bit five, a little bit longer, five. And what I'm going to be looking for in this, and that will also be the topic of your oral presentation that you do. And the oral presentation will probably be the last day of class. So there's no final this, in this seminar. This seminar has had, you've had lots of written work, almost weekly assignments, and the writing's been getting much better for everybody. And so you're going to be writing about this. And what I'm going to be looking for most, both in your oral presentation where I get to work on your one-on-one and we all look and we all criticize each other and work on that, is thinking out of the box. What can you come out with in this novel that's relevant to the world in an unusual way, an unusual application. So we'll talk about it that way. Something surprising in how you can throw something new, something new at it. Because science fiction really is the practice of coming up with a brand new concept, a brand new idea that people hadn't thought about before and applying it to the world. So it's really an example. And, th- and the reason your paper is a little longer, five pages, is it gives you a little bit more time to make the case that you're making a, a different point, an unusual point. So it's not just to make it uh, more difficult because it's longer, it's not, it's hardly any longer, it's about five pages, it's still short, but it gives you a little bit more flexibility to put that unusual spin on it, put that unusual angle. Now if you can do it in three pages, that's okay, but I'm, I'm recommending around five pages for your, for your final one, and that's what you'll do your presentation on. Okay. If you'd like, you can come in with gels. We have an overhead, so that can be there as well. Can we use PowerPoint? Um, PowerPoint is... Let me find out about that. Okay. PowerPoint might be difficult because then we'd have to have a, a laptop wheeled in. And I could bring my laptop in too, but... Well, you have a projector. You need, we need. A, I can get the projector in. Let me let me work on that. If you have a if you have a laptop and you want to w- bring it in, 
I can probably have a projector here for that okay. time, so you can do it that way. That would be excellent. Excellent. Okay. All right. Now, before I start picking apart the novel and looking at little literal spots, what what more do you think? If something was sort of hitting at you, hitting at the novel, I mean, hitting you from the novel, that that was unusual. That was. I want to see if you can get it yourself. What can you can you get things that are sort of like this is weird and this is sort of relevant and this is coming to make you think differently. Well, I mean, those little derma patches that they use for everything are here, I guess. The derma patches, that's for, you know, squelching pain and yeah, things I mean, like that. Yeah, I mean, they use them for nicotine. I mean, it stands to reason that pretty soon they'll be putting other things in them. Yeah, yeah, actually that was, I do not believe they had derma patches in 1984. So this was foretelling as well with regard to that. Well, let me give you an example of something that that I of the type of thing that I want you to think about. Thinking out of the box, thinking of something different. What was the environment? What was the environment like in Mel in William Gibson's Mel in William Gibson's Neuromancer? What was the physical environment like? It was a mess. They called it the sprawl. It was just long. It was just like people everywhere. What was the air quality like? Poor. Pardon me? Poor. Really poor. You could smell it. You could st- you could see it. Health was decaying all throughout. You're right. Everyone's right. Health was a big issue. People were... And what did you see about the health with regard to the Laurel Society? People were smoking, weren't they? They were smoking, they were losing their pancreases, they were losing this, they were losing that, they needed liver transplants. All types of things to fix people up. They had filters for ventilation. The environment would just come apart. And what was the role of corporates? What was the corporate role, the role of the corporate structure in a society like that with the environment falling apart? How was the corporate structure? Find more and more ways to. Oh, say it again. Find more ways to get more money out of the people to try and live themselves Yeah, exactly. Find more ways to get, no matter how bad the environment got, still find more ways to exploit the situation for personal individual gain. And then, what was the role of the government in in controlling that? They didn't. Yeah, it didn't. In fact, the government completely collapsed. So you had corporate corruption combined with governmental collapse and greed on the level of corporate to the point of destroying the planet, destroying the environment. And that's very interesting. Now let's let's take a look. And if you remember uh, Case, the main character, sometimes he walked out into the air, into the outside and you know, he would just he would he would sort of look at the at the air, he would look at the air that we were breathing that was going around him. And this, this sort of total K of the personal environment as well as the overall environment. Let's look at Paul Krugman's opinion, Paul Krugman's opinion column of yesterday. Now this is going to be April 17th, 2006, and that would be Monday, yesterday. And let's see if we can relate this to the novel in this way. The opinion column by Paul Krugman is called, is named, titled, Enemy of the Planet. Lee Raymond, the former chief executive of ExxonMobil, was played, was paid $686 million over 13 years. Somebody on the news the other day calculated how much that was per minute. <laughs> But that's not a reason to single him out for special excoriation. Executive compensation is out of control in corporate America as a whole, and unlike other grossly overpaid business leaders, Mr. Mr. Raymond can at least claim to have made money for his stockholders. There's a better reason to excoriate Mr. Raymond for the sake of his company's bottom line and perhaps his own personal enrichment. He turned mobile, he turned Exxon mobile into an enemy of the planet. To understand why ExxonMobil is a worse environmental villain than other big oil companies, you need to know a bit about how the science and politics of 
climate change have shifted over the years. Global warming emerged as a major public issue in the late 1980s. But at first, there was considerable scientific uncertainty. Over time, the accumulation, over time, the accumulation of evidence removed much of that uncertainty. Climate experts still aren't sure how much hotter the world will get and how fast. But there's now an overwhelming scientific consensus that the world is getting warmer and that human activity is the cause. In 2004, an article in the journal Science that surveyed 928 papers on climate change published in peer-reviewed scientific journals found that none of the papers disagreed with the consensus position. To dismiss this consensus, you have to believe in a vast conspiracy of misinformation to public that somehow embraces thousands of scientists around the world. That sort of thing is the stuff of bad novels. Sure enough, the novel, the novelist Michael Crichton, whose past work includes warnings about the imminent Japanese takeover of the world economy and murderous talking apes inhabiting the lost city of Zinj, has become perhaps the most prominent global warming skeptic. Mr. Crichton was invited to the White House to brief President Bush. So how have corporate interests responded in the early years when the science was still somewhat in doubt? Many companies from the oil industry, the auto industry, and other sectors were members of a group called the Global Climate Coalition, whose de facto purpose was to oppose curbs on greenhouse gases. But as the scientific evidence became clearer, many members, including oil companies like BP and Shell, left the organization and conceded the need to do something about global warming. Exxon, headed by Mr. Raymond, chose a different course of action. It decided to fight the science. A leaked memo from a 1998 meeting at the American Petroleum Institute in which Exxon, which hadn't yet merged with Mobile, was a participant, describes a strategy of, quote, logistical and moral support, unquote, to climate dissenters, quote, thereby raising questions about and undercutting prevailing scientific wisdom, unquote. And that's just what ExxonMobil has done. Lavish grants have supported a sort of alternative intellectual universe of global warming skeptics, skeptics, the people and institutions Exxon Mobil supports aren't actually engaged in climate research. They're the real-world equivalents of the Academy of Tobacco Studies in the movie Thank You for Smoking, whose purpose is to fail, is to, fail to find evidence of harmful effects. But the fake research works for its sponsors, partly because it gets picked up by right-wing pundits, but mainly because it plays perfectly into the he said, she said, conventions of quote-unquote balanced journalism. A 2003 study by Maxwell Boykoff and Jules Boykoff of reporting on global warming in major newspapers found that a majority of reports gave the skeptics, a few dozen people, many if not most receiving direct or indirect financial support from ExxonMobil, roughly the same amount of attention as a scientific consensus supported by thousands of independent researchers. As ExxonMobil's war on climate science, oh, has ExxonMobil's war on climate science actually changed policy for the worse? Maybe not. Although most governments have done little to curb greenhouse gases, and the Bush administration has done nothing, it's not clear that policies would have been any better if, even if ExxonMobil had acted more responsibly. But the fact is that whatever small chance there was of action to limit global warming became even smaller because ExxonMobil chose to protect its profits by trashing good science. And that, not the paycheck, is the real scandal of Mr. Raymond's reign as ExxonMobil's chief executive. What do you think about that? What do you think about what he's, what is he doing in this opinion column? Finding the yeah, he's finding this 
this corporate stance. What what else? What's his what's his angle? What's his unusual angle at that? And how do we relate that to the novel? But first of all, what's his unusual angle? Remember, I'm telling you to think out of the box, think of a different angle, an unusual angle. What's he doing? That's sort of hitting the readers from the left side. That's so the right side. That's that's set. People have a scandal or something. That's always about the money. He's saying it's not so much about the money; it's about the science. Okay, but now, Otto, that's very good. He's he's saying it's focusing on the people. People's understanding that it's always about the money, not the science. But is that is that unusual? Is that shocking? Is that surprising? Does that sort of it's put the reader? Was that? It's an unusual view because, like, whenever we see like big corporates, we always see them as like uh, the big companies have like it's all this money, this paycheck they throw around. He's saying here that it's not the paycheck that they throw around; it's the way they're trying to okay. Good. He's saying it's not the paycheck; it's what they're doing with it. But what about the paycheck? What's his strategy for getting the reader sort of, whoa, sort of knocking them off their seats and sort of catching their attention? Is he just giving them a list of ideas? He's throwing in some facts, but the facts are unusual facts that sort of support the overall injustice. What is he doing? What are the facts that he's throwing at you that sort of throw you off and sort of wake you up? When he's talking about how they're funding like reporters and because they're inferring reporters to like give them like whatever about they're they're finding finding these fake researchers. Yeah. Okay, but now let's let's look at something here. Let's start first with the paycheck. The funding of the fake researchers is is important. We're going to get to that, and that's actually a great point. What about the paycheck? Let's let's start with the very first sentence. Lee Raymond, the former chief executive of ExxonMobil, was paid. Six hundred and eighty-six million dollars over thirteen years. I want you to start thinking about how they write their opinion columns. The very first sentence. What does it do? It's a lot of money. What else? What does it do to you as the reader? I mean, have you ever heard of anyone ever getting eight hundred and eighty-six million dollars? And the news actually calculated, I think it was the Jim Lehrer News Hour, I'm not sure, but one of the news reports actually you know, divided and found out how much it was per minute. <laughs> it's an enormous amount per minute. But it's such an unusual fact. The very first thing he throws at you is an outrageous fact. But it's a fact. He throws you off. He gets your attention. And then the first response of the reader is, what's the first response of the reader? That's outrageous. What did that guy do? That must, it's his theft. I mean, eventually, eventually these, these overcompensation cases have to be resolved on the level of theft. Because these, the boards and the boards that are, uh, the corporate boards are voting their own salaries. It's not like the stockholders are all gathering and saying, okay, we're going to pay this person so much. It's the boards who are voting their own salaries. So ultimately it becomes an issue of corporate theft because they're voting... Whatever they want. In some cases, you know, over sometimes people get paid, you know, $150 million a year or something like that. I remember there was a big issue with uh, Grasso, who was running the stock exchange a while back and how much he was being paid. Uh, very similar types of stuff. But anyway, so the, the payment was exorbitant. And what does that do? What does that think? What is, what is the subconscious realization when you hear? Six hundred and eighty-six million dollars. You only got to keep three hundred and forty-three because of taxes. That's yeah, <laughs> great, Jason. But what else do you think about? He's doing something illegal. Something illegal. Kind of makes you mad. Pardon me. Kind of makes you mad. Or it starts to stir up like negative emotions. It, it does stir that up. What? What? How? What words would you use to characterize before you even get past the first sentence? What words would you use to characterize? Lee, Ma- Re- Lee Raymond, the wealthy, genius. wealthy genius. What's that? Greed. Greed. I, don't you think most readers would say? There's no need for negative connotations for people who make that much money. Like as a genius, that's a ridiculous amount of money for any. Like I got genius. paid. Like I got paid less than sixty-eight mil a year. It's sixty-eight point six or six eighty-six for his whole term. Even if he'd only been there ten years, he'd have made sixty-eight point six a year. Whatever six eighty-six is divided by thirteen is somewhere around fifty million a year. That's nothing. Really he can barely feed his family with that much. Money. I don't you really have to understand. There are lots of there are lots of cases of uh, corporate corporate uh, big wigs getting paid large sums I mean hu- humongous sums like that and their companies are losing money 
I mean, Hussein is right. I mean, you can't keep body and soul together for fifty million a year. Yeah, it's, just, yeah, it's, it's difficult. I mean, there is food to buy for the children. I, I <laughs> tell you what, it's just and houses, and house? Cabos and I mean, other good places. You can't live in the projects if you're doing that. You got to pay for it. All right. Well, so the point is, greed though is the first response of most readers when they read that thing. Greed. So the the very first thing is you're talking about individuals doing things for their own purpose, their own reasons, and then, you know, and then he gets into <coughs> enemy of the planet. Well, how is this greedy person who has got a ton of money, how is this person involved in being an enemy of the planet? So if we look at Paul Krugman's opinion column, that's what he seems to be saying. He's saying it's corporate greed that's leading to societal destruction. But he works it so well, too. He starts out with, like, this guy makes $686 million, and everyone's kind of like, wow, that guy's really greedy, you know? He's, like, cleaning out his stockholders. And then uh, and then he's sort of like... And then once you get this, like, hatred against him, then he jumps into, you know, environmental stuff. Whereas if we just started with how, you know, Lee Raymond was just a bad environmentalist, people would be like, oh, what the heck, who cares? But then, you know, throw that in at the beginning and you're like, this is a bad man. And then he goes into his environmental policy. That's a good way. He took, like, an old angle because everyone thinks money is bad and corporate. Money corrupts. Money. That's and it. then he goes with this new angle of, all right, he's also destroying the environment. And now people are like, all right, I care. Actually, he's, he's, he's the, Paul Krugman is arguing even more than just that he's, that really Raymond is instrumental in helping to destroy the environment. He's... He's saying that he's instrumental in helping confuse the public picture about whether the environment's being destroyed. Mm. So it's not so much that, in fact, at the end of the opinion column, he says that had Lee Raymond acted any differently, and had Exxon acted any differently, Exxon Mobil acted any differently, there's no indication that it would have improved the environment at all. So he's not blaming Lee Raymond or ExxonMobil for destroying the environment. What he is blaming them for is destroying the uh, uh, damaging the public's perception of the clarity of the issue. So Krugman is saying there really there is no issue. Global warming is going on. It's the clear consensus without really any debate that global warming is occurring and that there's going to be major environmental implications for that. And that ExxonMobil is supporting fake research for the purpose of confusing the public so that they cannot rally around a coherent policy that would reduce emissions, greenhouse gases, and thus attack global warming. So it's not that... Go, go ahead. That, I mean, that seems to be the trend of the, of the essay. But go ahead. What were you saying, Adam? Will the public want to rally behind a emissions-reducing policy? Because looking from the angle there, at the moment, everybody, every like, farming they can has two cars or something like that. And they drive them both. And hey, like, America's the largest output of like, greenhouse gases. Mm-hmm. But it's also a capitalist society. People don't want to give up their uh, freedoms. That's why in all of the like, conferences about this, they've always been saying, like, the actually equal across the board, so like places like India and China and places where there's a lot more people who haven't yet got the like massive output that America does, would like take a much harder hit because they're taking the same cut as America. But America's already producing so much. Mm-hmm. So people here don't want to give up their um, cars like and that's what it has to do if they're going to cut greenhouse emissions. Well, mm-hmm. and if you think about it, you can just look at it. This is kind of a weird way to look at it, but if you look at it from the point of, you know, Lee Raymond, right? If your average American family has two automobiles, and he works for ExxonMobil, who's filling their tanks, it's in his like it's in his best interest to combat anything to do with greenhouse gases or anything else that might possibly come from an automobile because heaven help us if the government passes something against automobile emissions that means, you know, the auto manufacturers are going to come to him saying, you know, we can't use as much gasoline now because you know, we got to protect our emissions or whatever so I mean, it's in his best, I mean, I know he's portraying him as this great enemy of the environment but it is in his best interest in, in corporate America, he wasn't, you know doing anything against his stockholders or anything I mean, he was doing what he was what he was paid to do. You can look at it that way. Uh, 
do, do and do corporate people do have, do they have a requirement to be globally conscious no. or do they have an obligation to be profit conscious well it it depends because there are some companies who pride themselves on being environmentally conscious because that helps attract consumers there's some companies that say, you know, well, you know, we clean up our emissions and we, we filter this and everything is, you know, filtered four times through and your car produces less emissions because we made it this way. And so some people are like, yeah, Toyota Prius, you know, and then they go buy one because they're pumped about the environmental friendliness of Toyota. Where at, and, you know, and so like all these car manufacturers like GMC has got the flex fuel <laughs> engine that will run on methanol now. But it's just like for some companies – it's in their best interest to promote the environment as well as make money for, you know, their stockholders. But then in other companies... But that that's fine. Like, if Exxon just did that, but they're not only saying that we're not going to help the environment, they're also saying, oh, this whole global warming thing is not even there. Yeah, Exxon are different from Toyota because they're the people producing the fuel. So they don't want different kinds of fuel out there unless they can control them. I know, exactly. But if Exxon wanted to be just... If Exxon was like, oh, we're doing nothing wrong, then just say, all right, we don't care about the environment. We're not going to do anything about it. You buy it or not, whatever. But they're actually going out and saying, oh, wait, so global warming thing is overrated. If you look at the facts, we have researchers here. Well, well, the thing That's is, a problem. Well, the thing is, though, that they can't, they can't do that because what happens is in, in, like, that arena of, like, automotive and oil, like, the government, is, the government and the EPA can slap restrictions on them. So they have to do their best to confound the research, or otherwise there'll get there'll be a big enough consensus of researchers who believe in it that they'll just, you know, start slapping all kinds of injunctions on them against, you know... No, that's true, but Exxon needs to just be evil, not fool the world into thinking they're also good. You know Why what I mean? they want to? Exactly, but that's the problem. They're, like crossing that line where now they're trying to fool us too, you know. Just well, say, all right, we don't care, do something about it. Well, well think about it. No, if you think about it like this, though, <laughs> you got, you got you know, major companies who, or, or not major companies, but, you know, some institutions that are promoting the research into global warming, right? Obviously, they're getting grants and stuff from the government on, you know, on global warming research. So then on the other side, you got to have Exxon, who's funding the naysayers. I mean, it's, I know it sounds weird, but it's like it's the exact opposite. I mean, you know, it's like you got one group funding people who are saying, yeah, there is global warming. You got, you know, Exxon funding people who are saying there aren't. It's just these two, like, major, like, major entities that are funding opposite, you know, like, I mean, I mean, it, it sounds far-fetched, but the thing is, like, yeah, I mean, the, the one institution funds the positive side, so, you know, you Exxon's the, you just funding... The, you need the devil. Exxon's just funding you the devil, you know? I don't know. That's what Paul Krugman is arguing, that this is, that the devil side of it, the both sides of the story, the he said, she said side of it, is in this sense false, because there's a clear consensus that global warming, there's a clear unanimous consensus that global warming is in fact occurring. Yeah, but what major political theorist was it who said that if you accept a fact at face value, it no longer becomes a fact and becomes absolutely worthless? There was there was someone who said that, that, that people take take facts for granted, you know, and, and once there's a large enough consensus it takes a fact for granted, no one questions it anymore. Yeah, it's actually a good point. It's actually a very good point to actually question whether, you know, any facts... Is in reality is 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 a reality of fact, but uh, I think what he's pointing to here is not an attempt to legitimate sort of Socratic questioning. What he's pointing to, what Krugman seems to be pointing to here, is an overt public relations campaign to confuse the matter, not to question whether global warming actually exists. That you actually pay people for the purpose of coming up with fake research. That's yeah. what Paul... Well, no one ever said it was fake research. And, 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 and with the understanding that this fake research will, because of the nature of the news media that always wants a he said, she said orientation to every news story just so that they can sound balanced, they go out and find this fake research and then put it on as a... Yeah, but the same, like, the same argument. It can't be entirely... Like, it, what it can't be is entirely fake because otherwise it wouldn't hold up in any sort of, like... Even the news, like if it came out that it was oh, not, fake, not, not it necessarily. Be, what it, it's not fake, so much as a different interpretation of the facts. Because if it's fake, then like in the scientific papers, which they have to publish this into, cloud the issue for like the. But but other what what Paul Krugman is saying in a review of all scientific papers, there was like how many did he say there were? Uh, he said in. in <coughs> 
in, in 2004, an article in the journal Science that surveyed 928 papers on climate, climate change published in peer-reviewed scientific journals found that none of the papers disagreed with the consensus opinion, the consensus position. Well, like you said about political science people and people writing theses, I mean, not everyone comes up with a new idea. Most people just take a new spin on an old idea. I mean, for all the person who did that research knows, there were 986 people who took the who took the premise that global warming is real, and then you know <coughs> wrote that you know this molecule causes a little more global warming than this molecule. And some how other about, guy wrote some other how stuff. How about looking at it from this perspective? You are brought up in an environment in which there's always two sides. That you're always taught that there's got to be two sides. So even in cases like this, where the planet is warming up, your natural reaction is to say, well, there's got to be two sides to everything. Do you see, what if you were reporters? Would they be any different from you? The reporters come from the same culture, the same everything, same educational background. The reporters would say, we've got to have two sides. What Paul Krugman is saying, and mind you, I'm being the devil's advocate here, in a sense, trying to push Paul Krugman's view just to make the, 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 the point of what he's trying to say uh, as provocative as possible. Paul Krugman's point, of, point is that, that the companies like ExxonMobil are taking advantage of that desire to have two sides to everything, to be able to exploit it, to confuse the public about something. It's a great tactic. I mean, oh, I mean, the thing is, you're on on the one hand, yes, it might be destroying the environment, but on the <laughs> other, but on the other, the other hand, but on the other, it's a great piece of political maneuvering. I mean, you're taking in a Machiavellian world. You're oh, it's I know you're, you're taking advantage. Of, you're taking advantage of the human propensity. Now let's get back to neuromancer. Isn't that exactly what Mel Gibson is talking? William, I'm sorry, We're William. Work on Gibson. Him and Mel Gibson. I'm sorry about that. Isn't that what William Gibson is talking about with Neuromancer? Isn't it that type of motivation that leads to... I mean, yeah, you can't just... Came like 50 years and I go, like, oh, it's my bad. I guess you guys are right. Let me go take my $2 billion and head to Mars or something. You can't have that kind of... Well, I mean... You guys, have, you guys so, like... You don't have to have any more responsibility. I know you don't. The people are so stupid if they, like, think that this guy cares about... Hey, I mean, I mean, you got you got the reporters, right? You're going to take advantage of their natural desire to have never, two sides. Never overestimate the intelligence of reporters. No. They're just like anybody, and, and especially reviewers of things. Uh, reviewers of movies and, and music. Well, and movie reviewers are challenged anyway. Uh, you know, it's amazing. I mean, reporters are, reporters just go out there and just report. There are some really intelligent reporters, but a lot of them are really quite mediocre in terms of what they actually get out. Uh, some of them are quite much... I, I, I've seen some that I'd classify in the idiot category, but they still are out there. They can, they can present the information well. They, they sound authoritative. I mean, that's what their job is. Their profession is to sound authoritative. For example, Peter Jennings, the late Peter Jennings. What was his educational level? High school? I don't think he graduated. He might not oh. have graduated from high school, but he certainly had no college. He might have had a high school degree. I thought he had dropped out. I think he like, got a GED or something. He got a GED or something like that, yeah. He was from Canada, no college, but when you heard him on wow. TV... You believed him. I mean, he was the authority. He was the man. He spoke with authority, and it sounded like he knew what he was talking about. The reality was there wasn't much there there. There just wasn't much behind that facade. I mean, he was very good at presenting. That's what he gets paid to do. That's why some people actually... You know, anybody who's in show business, you have to always question that. Because what you see on the screen, they can be very intelligent, it's just that you can't tell by looking at the screen because they're trained to look perfect on the screen. They can look like Einstein on the screen. You just can't tell. They may be intelligent, but they may not be. You just can't tell. That's what's, uh, that's what's great about, you know, really weird movies like, uh, what was that one? Oh, well, the guy was schizophrenic and he kept imagining John Nash. He kept him. Yeah. The Beautiful, a beautiful, yeah, a beautiful Mind. mind. Uh, yeah, and it was like, you know, I don't know about Russell Crowe. The guy dresses like a slob, but when he got up on stage, when he got up, you know, in front of the camera, and he was like a mathematical genius. Yeah, man, you could believe it. You I love Russell Crowe. Good actor. 
He's a good actor. Good actor. But any, but anyway, I mean, you, you can believe that the. I mean, you know, I, and I don't think the man's a genius. I mean, yeah. I don't know, but I don't think the man's a certifiable genius, and yet. But he certainly looked. He certainly looked the part oh, yeah. when he was. That's what, but that's what he's paid to do. And he wasn't a preppy collegiate, you know, anything either. But he could definitely put on his loafers and tie. And so what? Let's get back to the neuromancer. The 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 basic issue that we're that we're that we're having here is that it's very. It's not that all. It's not all that hard to deceive the reporting population, the reporters. I mean, they they are they're not the scientists themselves. They are they are people that are supposed to. They have a pattern of reporting, and they have this he said she said always two sides to a story. So if you're clever about it, you can manipulate that environment. You can manipulate that need of theirs, and thus confuse the public. But the point that I'm getting here is that what's driving that is corporate. From Paul Krugman's Paul Krugman's perspective, is corporate greed, and that fits exactly into the destruction of all the rules. Eventually, the government will be non-functional. Let me press you one more point: global warming. If global warming continues as it's going, and we're really talking perhaps as early as 2050, 45 years away, you'll all see it if it goes the way it, you'll see. You'll see. You'll see the ice caps melting during the, the relative summers, meaning uh, during the summertime. The, for the northern hemisphere, the North Pole will melt, and summertime for the southern hemisphere, the South Pole will. But what that will mean is that there will be an abandonment of all coastal cities. New York will be like Venice. You'll abandon New York. The subways will be flooded. Everything will be flooded. New York, Washington, D.C. It's very likely in the year 2050 that Atlanta may be the capital of the United States. They will have to walk away from Washington, D.C. in your lifetime. It's not going to be a sustainable city. Miami's history... New Orleans, it'll be the first to go. The idea of rebuilding New Orleans is stupid. It's just a political thing. The way they're pumping it's greenhouse gases in, it's not a sustainable city. And it's really not even political anymore. It's more the sentimental value. For it's a sentimental value. It's just not a sustainable city. Los Angeles will go. Portland will go. Houston will go. Houston will go. Ah, They'll all go. All coastal like cities. All coastal cities oh, yeah, will be flooded. Florida will be maybe 40% of what it currently is. It's like Nebraska is like... Atlanta will be okay because we're about a, we're about a, like we're about a thousand feet over sea level. But you're talking within your lifetime, maybe seeing this, you're talking about 18 to 24 feet rise in the sea level in your lifetime. Is low warming really true? I mean, I've heard that it's just a rise of the planet and it's been proven in history that oh, no, the actually, planet has had rises in 2 to 5 degrees and it's been part of the natural Yeah, and when cycle. it does happen, it happens quickly. But isn't that just part very of that? Quick, like is global warming just like our... No, it's very real. It's very is real. it something we've done or is it something the planet is going to do by itself? Well, actually, that's, that's, like a, that's a good point because it's, it's, it's raising the issue of, of, um, that's, that's being brought up in the Romancer, which is uh, how the destruction of the environment and ultimately the collapse of the United States government and all other governments, because they will not have the ability to... They want to have the resources to cope with that level of infrastructure destruction. You're talking about evacuation of all major cities, and they'll all happen at about the same time. The country won't be able to support that. You can't put a gasoline tax and raise that. I mean, you, that, you're talking about evacuating huge proportions of the entire populace, the entire economic structure wiping out. So the question is, you know, and all driven by corporate greed of the type that Paul Krugman is talking about now. That that's what that's what's driving. This this flight into the into the fantasy world of, of cyberpunk of, of of jacking into the net everything the the government actually is is almost almost non-existent but can it actually occur well you know I know it's early in the morning I, but I do read the New York Times early in the morning uh, let's look at one thing how can this happen quickly the question is how can it happen quickly can I just do this one thing Jason this is today's opinion column by Nicholas Kristof. This is Tuesday, April 18th, 2006. Now listen to this, and this is a very possible, very plausible thing of, uh, that what geologically, from the geological record, when they look at global warming, it does happen very quickly over the span of, say, 10, 20 years. It's there. Yeah, very fast, 100 years max. I mean, it's very fast. It, when global warming occurs, it doesn't take like 10,000 years to slowly get the temperatures up. It snaps on. Well, one of the reasons is, why does it snap on? Well, let's talk about this. This is Nicholas Kristof with his column of today, The Big Blurp Theory of the Apocalypse. 
It's a dark and stormy night, and deep within the ocean, the muddy bottom begins to stir. Giant squids flee in horror as reservoirs of methane frozen at the bottom of the ocean begin to thaw, releasing bubbles that rise to the surface. Soon the ocean surface is churning and burping gas like a billion overfed infants transforming the composition of our atmosphere. That's a scene from a new horror movie I'm envisioning called Killer Ocean. I'm hoping it might play in the White House and Congress because it depicts one of the more bizarre and frightening ways in which global warming could devastate our planet, what scientists have dubbed the methane burp. Since President Bush is complacent about conventional risks from climate change, such as the prospect that those of us in Manhattan will end up knee-deep in the Atlantic, let's try fear-mongering. Methane is a greenhouse gas that is 20 times more powerful than carbon dioxide. And thousands of gigatons of methane, equivalent to the total amount of coal in the world, lie deep within the oceans in the form of ice-like solids called methane hydrates. The big question is whether global warming temperatures have risen about one degree Fahrenheit over the last 30 years, will thaw some of these methane hydrates. <clears throat> if so, the methane might be released as a gargantuan oceanic, oceanic burp. Once in the atmosphere, that methane would accelerate the greenhouse gas and warm the earth and raise sea levels even more. The juiciest disaster movie scenario would be a release of enough methane to significantly affect the atmospheric concentration, suggests the excellent discussion of methane hydrates by scholars at www.realclimate.org. One reason for concern about a methane hydrate apocalypse is that something like it may have happened several times in the past. For example, 251 million years ago, there was a catastrophe known as the Permian extinction that came close to wiping out life on Earth. Nobody is sure what caused the Permian extinction, but one theory is that it was methane burps. As, and as long as I'm fear-mongering, there was also a better understood warming 55 million years ago known as the Paleocene-Eocene Thermal Maximum, or PETM. That was a period when temperatures shot up by 10 degrees Fahrenheit in the tropics and by 15 degrees in polar areas. And many scientists think it was caused by the melting of methane hydrates. The PETM event 55 million years ago is probably the most likely example of their impact, though there are smaller events dotted through the record, says Gavin, Gavin Schmidt, a NASA expert on climate change. He emphasizes the uncertainties, but adds that since we are likely to enter a climate that hasn't been seen for a few million years, it's reasonable to worry about methane hydrates. To be sure, some experts are skeptical. Daniel Schrag, a geochemist at Harvard, doubts that methane hydrates were the culprit 55 million years ago. For starters, he says, the theory doesn't offer a good explanation of the initial change that melted the methane hydrates. For all the uncertainty, there is an important point here. The history of climate shows that it does not evolve slowly and gracefully. It lurches. There are tipping points, and if we trigger certain chain reactions, then our leaders cannot claim a mulligan. They could set back our planet for, say, 10 million years. The White House has used scientific uncertainty as an excuse for its paralysis, but our leaders are supposed to devise policies to protect us even from threats that are difficult to assess precisely. And climate change should be considered even more menacing than a nuclear-armed Iran. Moreover, uncertainty cuts both ways. The best guess of climate experts is that seas will rise by two feet by 2100, 2100, but if the West Antarctic ice sheet were to melt, then that alone would raise seas by 20 feet. Frankly, it's the well-known risks of rising temperatures and sea levels, more than worry about cataclysmic methane burp that should drive us to curb carbon emissions. But our political system doesn't seem able to grapple with scientific issues like climate. Our only hope for firm action 
would be a major U.S.-led global initiative to curb carbon, and the Bush administration has already dropped the ball on that. The best reason for action on global warming remains the basic imperative to safeguard our planet in the face of uncertainty, and our leaders are failing wretchedly in that responsibility. If we need an apocalypse to concentrate our minds, then just imagine our descendants sitting on the top of Mount um, Ararat beside their ark, cursing us for triggering a methane burp. So it does. Missed the brilliant point in all that. What's that? If there's so much freaking methane, which can be used as fuel, go fetch it. Well, go fetch it. Actually, there's plenty of fuel if they wanted it. For example, but the the issue is that we don't seem to be moving in that direction. For example, Brazil right now uses alcohol-based, ethanol-based fuels or gasoline fuels, and the gasoline fuels are more expensive than the alcohol-based fuels. But they use sugar cane to produce their alcohol, and the energy content of sugar cane alcohol is ten times more than the energy content of corn-based alcohol. And to make things worse, the U.S. has tariffs, very high tariffs, on alcohol coming from Brazil. <laughs> so we actually are, we actually are, uh, by using of those tariffs, subsidizing and supporting the continued burning of oil in this country, which is sort of, which is sort of odd. When you use something like um, sugarcane, what you're actually doing is not improving. You're not increasing global warming because you take the carbon dioxide out of the air when you grow the sugarcane, then you burn it and you release it back into the air, then you take it out of the air again, so your carbon dioxide level is is neutral. The other thing is that corn is a petroleum petroleum dominant product. Most of the fertilizer, a huge proportion of the fertilizers that are used for for corn are made out of... uh, either natural gas or petroleum, mostly natural gas. So you're actually, you're actually, something like 50%, not 50%, something like 20% of all of the, uh, of the petroleum, of all of the oil uh, consumed in the United States. I, I heard on the, on Fresh Air, the, uh, the National Public Radio show with Terry Gross, uh, something like 20% of all of the oil used in the United States goes for producing fertilizer, which then goes to produce corn. So when you're using corn, you're actually not using you're actually not using a completely petroleum-free product. You're using you're actually using petroleum to make the corn, and that not that would not necessarily be the case with with a sugarcane, although that's another issue. Anyway, so that that raises complexities, but let's start going into the actual parts of the novel. Okay, let's turn over, and we're using the paperback version of the novel, so, but it matches closely what we've been doing. Let's go over to chapter 4, page 58. Chapter 4, page 58. And this is in part 2 of the, of the novel. And this goes at an issue that's sort of interesting because it's contemporary. It's talking about terrorists. Now let's talk about let's, let's read a little bit about this from the novel and find out what are they talking about. Cut to Dr. Virginia Rambali, Sociology, NYU. Her name, faculty, and school pulsing across the screen in pink alphanumerics. Given their pension for these random acts of surreal violence, someone said, it may be difficult for our viewers to understand why you continue to insist that this phenomenon isn't a form of terrorism. Dr. Rambali, oh, and this is, of course, a TV interview about a certain type of terrorism. Dr. Rambali said, there is always a point at which the terrorist ceases to manipulate the media gestalt, a point at which the violence may well escalate but beyond which the terrorist has become symptomatic of the media gestalt itself. Terrorism as we ordinarily understand it, it is innately media-related. The Panther Moderns, which is a group of terrorists in in this novel, the Panther Moderns differ from their other terrorists precisely in the degree of self-consciousness 
in their awareness of the extent to which media divorce the act of terrorism from the original socio-political intent. We're talking about terrorism now by a group called the Panther Moderns. Now, to put this into... Ex- what, what did the Panther Moderns do soon after this? What were they involved in? What, what act of... The attack on SenseNet. Yeah, the attack on what? SenseNet. Yeah, on the, on the net. And... What actually did they do? Was it a real attack? Was it a well? They had a real attack, um, and then at the same time, Case was having a non-real attack on the Matrix. All right. Now let's let's actually jump over to page sixty-seven. There's a terrorist attack. Okay. Let's look at page sixty-seven, and this is chapter. <coughs> Chapter 4, near the end of chapter 4, actually, and talking about the uh, a meeting with the Panther Modern leader. The Panther Modern leader, who introduced himself as Lupus Yonderboy, wore a polycarbon suit with a recording feature that allowed him to replay backgrounds at will. Perched on the edge of Case's work table like some kind of state-of-the-art gargoyle. By the way, that word gargoyle also appears prominently in Neil Stephenson's Snow Crash. He regarded Case and Armitage with hooded eyes. He smiled. His hair was pink. A rainbow forest of Microsofts bristled behind his left ear. The ear was pointed, tufted with more pink hair. His pupils had been modified to catch the light like a cat's. Case watched the suit crawl with color and texture. You let it get out of control, Armitage said. He stood in the center of the loft like a statue, wrapped in the dark, glossy folds of an expensive-looking trench coat. Chaos, Mr. Who, Lupus Yonderboy said. Why, who is he referring to with Mr. Who? Armitage, he doesn't know his name. Yeah, yeah. No, actually, but this is Lupus Yonderboy talking. Right, he's referring to Mr. Armitage. He just doesn't know his name because it's... All right. Chaos, Mr. Who, uh, Lupus Yonderboy said. That is our mode and modus. That is our central kick. Your woman knows. We deal with her, not with you, Mr. Who. Now, when he says your woman knows, what's he talking about there? Anyone remember? Molly. Molly. Molly is the one who worked with Case. She was the one in the real world. Case was in the cyber world, and she went and she stole a, a an object that was needed by Armitage. Okay, so this Panther Modern group was working with her, even though she was being employed by Armitage. Okay, back to this part. His suit has taken on a weird, angular pattern of beige and pale avocado. She needed her medical team. She's with them. We'll, ca- we'll watch out for her. Everything's fine, he smiled again. Pay him, Case said. Armitage glared at him. We don't have the goods. Your woman has it, yonder boy said. Pay him. Armitage crossed stiffly to the table and took three fat bundles of new yen from the pockets of his trench coat. You want to count it? He asked Yonder Boy. No, the Panther Modern said. You'll pay. You're a Mr. Who. You pay to stay one, not Mr. Name. I hope that isn't a threat, Armitage says. That's business, said Yonder Boy, stuffing the money into the single pocket on the front of his suit. The phone rang, Case answered. Molly, he told Armitage, handing him the phone. Okay, what's going on here? And what can we connect to the, par- to the paragraph that we read earlier from page 58? about terrorism. What's going on here? There was a, a robbery and this, pan, and this Panther Moderns group participated in the robbery, but they're a terrorist organization with, as Dr. Rambali said, a original social poli- socio-political intent. They're like anarchists. They just want chaos. They want payoffs. No, chaos. Chaos. They want chaos. 
What else? I mean, that's what they're all about, just causing chaos. Well, let me ask you a different question. How does this relate to the Shining Path, the terrorist organization in, Guru, in, in Peru? It would help if I knew something about them. Well, it was originally a Maoist, ideal, politically, ideologically led organization. And they eventually became heavily involved in uh, drugs and you know, other types of criminal activities. Well, in the Panther Moderns, we have something similar going on. They originally have, as Dr. Rambali said, original socio-political intent. But now they've become nothing more than drug runners and collection boys and messengers and whatever anyone will pay them to do, they'll do. They have blended into the realm of crime. Yeah, that's an interesting point. What is this do we say about, what do we understand then about the nature of terrorism? What is the nature of terrorism? It breaks rules, doesn't it? Well, what rules does it break? Normally, originally, when it sets itself up, it's up against the rules that govern society in a political way, an ideological way. But then... What's a rule? I mean, it's just, what's the difference between one rule and the next rule? When do you actually cross the border? Well, who sets the rules? There's no government. Pardon me? There's no government. Who's setting the rules? Well, what about in situations in current life where there is a government, even? You're ag- up against all the rules. Go ahead. What's that? If you're a terrorist up against government, then basically, if you go against one of the government's rules, which you're like, up against to begin with, making another rule is still doing exactly the same thing as That's good. Now, we're running out of time, so let me just make a, a final point. That's, that's good. They, the, the terrorist organizations, as you just said, operate like that. I think the one point that we want to add to that, however, is that terrorists with a political agenda also spill into high-pay crime, meaning what is a rule, a rule, a rule? Eventually, it breaks all rules. And so the connection is the intellectual license to disregard all the laws and the rules of society. Crime then follows the political agenda. It's just a natural outcome. And so what starts out with a terrorist organization with a political agenda ends up as a terrorist organization with a criminal agenda. And what you have there is symptomatic of the collapse of the state. The complete. And that's how you get the ultimate movement from political and corporate corruption into total social decay where the terrorist organizations become, you know, equal combatants with the corporate interests as the rest of the society falls to pieces. I think that's what the major, one of the major points is that William Gibson is, is making. Okay, well look, we'll continue this on, on Thursday.